ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Artificial intelligence is developing and expanding rapidly with governments globally scrambling to keep up to make sure their citizens are protected. The EU and the United States are implementing legislation. In Australia, the minister in charge has tasked an expert panel to help decide how the country should respond to and monitor the most high-risk AI technologies. Ed Husick is the Minister for Industry and Science and he joins me now from our Parliament House studio. Minister, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Patricia. I was going to say um, Happy New Year, but <laughs> that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> We've We're gone beyond the yeah, statute really limitations have. for that greeting, sorry. Facial recognition technology, along with the use of AI in employment and health, are considered high risk. What sort mm. of damage could that technology do here? I think the concern is uh, on a number of levels. Uh, I mean, the best way to summarise it is, does it impact on people's future prospects or their health? Uh, in some cases, the use of Artificial intelligence in employment scenarios, for instance, uh, has uh, raised the concern that people might get a job based on AI that is tethered to bad data that uh, is uh, biased or deficient. Um, There are concerns that uh, it might be used in terms of um, cognitive behavioural manipulation, for example, use in toys with kids, uh, biometric uh, facial recognition and social scoring, uh, which we've seen in different different countries. So these risks have been identified and uh, what you're seeing in different jurisdictions is governments thinking, well, how do we, one, identify and manage those risks? And that's what we're trying to be doing uh, at, the, at the moment. Since the second half of last year, we started consultations on the safe and responsible use of AI. In January, I released our interim response This month, I've released uh, details uh, just yesterday of people we brought together to do uh, the work of the development of the mandatory guardrails to help uh, manage and respond to those risks. There are concerns AI can produce biased results that reflect already Mm. entrenched uh, inequalities, right? Like the racism, for instance, is a big one that's been raised. Uh, That would occur in in high-risk and low-risk scenarios too. How can you deal with that? I think it's important that uh, people recognise at the start that AI is not some sort of um, magical tool that uh, miraculously comes up uh, with predictions or outcomes. It is absolutely grounded on the data that is fed to it by people. And those data sets you need to pay close uh, attention to. There had been concerns in times past where, uh, for example, law enforcement has used Uh, AI in years past to try and determine uh, likely uh, legal infractions or breaks of the law, breaches of the law, uh, and it's overwhelmingly targeted certain groups of people, uh, particularly in a racial context. So uh, we do have to be alive to the fact that the data you put in influences the output that you receive out of AI. And uh, what the concern now is, is because the, the phenomenal power that AI has been able to uh, achieve in the last year, particularly through generative AI and large the use of what, what are known as large language models, uh, everyone has now taken a step back and gone, okay, we really need to think deeply as governments about what we do. And in the Australian context, I mean, I think everyone recognises AI, if used correctly, can have huge benefit and it's got potential huge economic benefit. But there are a lot of people that won't use it because of trust and we've got to deal 
with those trust issues so we get the best out of AI. You're looking at a voluntary set of standards for the industry, but the European Union and the United States are actually legislating and the Productivity Commission has recommended a proper regulatory approach because the technology is is so far-reaching. Why are you looking at voluntary frameworks? Let's just be clear. I mean, even in the EU case, Patricia, they are looking while uh, waiting for their uh, AI Act to come into effect. They are looking at a voluntary mechanism in the interim as well. Uh, And we are doing two things, and I just need to emphasise and clarify here. Uh, We are working with industry on voluntary safety standards, and it is important to work with industry, uh, particularly those at the leading edge, uh, to see how we can improve testing, transparency and accountability. So we're working on that. But the mandatory guardrails, we'll be looking at how we embed those within either existing pieces of legislation or if we need to do our own legislation or there are other regulatory measures that need to be undertaken to give effect to those guardrails. So it's two things that are happening, Patricia. It's the development in the interim, like so we can get moving on it mm. um, for those voluntary guardrails Uh, or standards, I should say, while we develop the mandatory ones. Okay, so there will be mandatory. So Mm. how soon will you be able to legislate that? Give me a time frame for the mandatory part. So we've asked this expert group that is made up of a very high calibre bunch of people from legal, technology, ethical backgrounds, people who've had been monitoring the the, uh, technology for quite some time. Uh, We've tasked them to identify risk and also mitigation Uh, And we've asked them to do it by the end of June. So we expect that that work, we want that work to happen relatively quickly. The Australian Human Rights Commission has argued for an AI safety commissioner in 2021. Will you do it? Let's wait and see. I I think we've got some, uh, if I can put it to you, we've identified some clear courses of work. Uh, We want that to happen relatively quickly. Uh, We'll take on board, obviously, and I always remain open-minded and appreciate the input we get from different corners uh, in terms of what we need to do. Uh, My preference is that we get on with the work that we've uh, identified and also acknowledge that a lot of my colleagues are thinking deeply about this issue too and that they're working in their different areas about the impacts of AI in their space, be it the Attorney General looking at copyright and AI. I know the Employment Minister is thinking about the impact of AI on jobs. The Communications Minister is looking at online safety uh, with the eSafety Commissioner. So we do have a lot of work that's happening uh, to deal with some of these things that we understand the public's got concerns about and they want greater assurance and confidence about. Yesterday, something quite uh, significant happened. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie had a motion urging the US and UK to allow Julian Assange to return to Australia and it passed the House of Reps. That's because your government supported it. Why did you decide to do it? I think uh, the Prime Minister uh, has been expressing a view for quite some time, as members of our government have, that it's about time that we resolve this, uh, this matter. It's gone on Uh, for long enough, and uh, I think it just reflects what we've expressed publicly. Why do you want him home? Uh, What is it? It's been 12 12 years now um, between being uh, uh, in exile, in effect, or or in um, uh, house detention in that uh, Ecuadorian embassy uh, in the UK, uh, serving, you know, being in prison, Uh, and trying to get this resolution uh, moving. There hasn't been any other uh, action that's taken uh, taken effect or or been um, uh, activated against Mr Assange. And I just think, uh, uh, as many people have and have said this quite publicly, 
that uh, it's now time to end this. I just want to move to another uh, issue, Minister, that you've spoken about, and that is, of course, the war in the Middle East. You've said the government has been sending a strong signal of its concern of a military ground invasion in Rafah in the south of Gaza. What more should the government be doing? How concerned are you about this potential ground invasion, but also the military strikes? Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I it's when you think about uh, what is happening right now, I mean, more broadly over the last few months, this has been a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's a particular crisis given that you've got about 1.5 million people uh, crammed into an area in Rafa that's about the size of Heathrow Airport. Uh, these are people that have left homes that have been just completely destroyed. They've gone, this will be potentially the third or fourth safe zone. This was set up as a safe zone to create refuge for people and it's now being potentially targeted for military action. Uh, and there are a lot of women and children that are in that, that area right now and the international community uh, has been speaking up and Australia has been a voice uh, saying that you cannot conceivably go in there and conduct military action in that last area where everyone has been told, move here, uh, it'll be safe here, and now they'll undertake uh, military action. Um, there, there is a, as I said, uh, it is heartbreaking to see the, the humanitarian uh, crisis that's unfolded there. No sanitation, no housing, no food, no water, no functioning medical system uh, in there. And the whole notion that you would conduct military action in there with vulnerable people, particularly women and children, is unfathomable. The US is asking Israel to formulate a credible plan for an assault in Rafah. Do you believe there is any credible way? Uh, it's hard to see how you can. As I said, this is an area the size of Heathrow Airport where 1.5 million people are being crammed in. Um, how do you undertake military exercise in there? I mean, um, I think about 80% of the Gazan population, 1.75 million people, um, they've got nowhere to live. And there are a lot of them that are, have now moved uh, into Rafah. Uh, and on top of that, what, the, uh, what Palestinian people, and particularly children, like one, as John Lyons has said, we can't look away. This is your, the ABC's uh, global affairs editor has pointed out, you know, every 15 minutes a Palestinian child dies. Uh, one in uh, ten of the children that have died didn't make their first birthday. Like, the, the, these statistics, these are not numbers. These are people, and these are people who, whose futures have been ended, and there are life-and-death decisions that are potentially being made by the Israeli government in an area where people are vulnerable. And I just cannot see how you do a credible uh, plan to protect civilians undertaking military action in that area where civilians are crammed in in that way. And I think the Israeli government cannot ignore international opinion, and particularly from some of its closest allies and friends, like the US, for instance. Is it ignoring international uh, opinion and its friends' advice? Well, it appears to be. I mean, let's be frank. Uh, I think if you've now got a US president that has expressed the view that the action that is being taken is over the top... Um, that, that is very serious language for a US president to express. Uh, and uh, I think it... Um, I, I don't want to... I mean, obviously, it's not my role to interpret uh, the underpinnings or the, the, um, the assumptions driving the, the expression of that statement. But I think there is a degree of concern uh, that Israel, the Israeli government is not listening. 
and people are very conscious, as I said, of the statistics that I just mentioned to you before and the fact that, you know, 70% of the people who've lost their lives, who've been killed uh, as a result of this military action in Gaza have been women and children. Uh, people are just very conscious that, that's, that that is, one, unacceptable and, two, cannot continue. We're now at 30,000 people who've been killed as a result of this military action in Gaza. There are people who would like to see the aid to UNRWA restored. The Australian mm. government still hasn't announced that. When's that going to happen? Oh, I'm very keen, and I think the uh, you've seen the Foreign Minister express a, a keenness for this to happen as quickly as possible. Um, you know, uh, in terms of UNRWA, they are the principal mechanism by which humanitarian aid is delivered into this part of the world, and they have been... Uh, had their funds suspended. So that means there is no one else that is able, credibly, uh, to extend humanitarian uh, assistance in an area, as I've said, where there's no sanitation, food, water, medicine, uh, and we need to get that uh, moving as quickly as possible. But why hasn't Uh, it been restored then, if that's the argument? Well, look, the... uh, uh, the, the concerns are legitimate and real that there may have been um, workers in there uh, in that agency that assisted Hamas undertake its brutal, uh, its brutal activities on October 7. And so that is a very serious uh, allegation uh, and people who have been found to, to do that have to be absolutely held uh, to account. So, uh, you know, I understand the UN is undertaking those investigations and as soon as those are done, uh, the better, because we do need to have that humanitarian assistance flowing. Uh, And in the absence, while Israel has been very successful, obviously, in getting countries uh, to take that issue seriously and there's you've seen that defunding occur, uh, I, I think Israel, the Israeli government's got a responsibility too Uh, in that case, to step in and provide humanitarian assistance or allow that assistance, I should say, to flow in there while these other matters are being resolved. And I think there is a a focus and a determination, particularly within our government, to get this resolved as quickly as we can. And I'm certainly one of those voices that is expressing the need uh, for that to occur as quickly as possible. Are you a Swifty? No, I'm not, I'm afraid. I just wanted to know whether you were a Swifty. Who's your favourite band? I respect... Uh, I, I am not going into my musical tastes because I am one of the world's greatest dags and I just don't feel like that is a safe area for me to talk about on RN Breakfast. You like Nirvana. Ed Husick there, Minister for Industry wow. and Science, joining us this morning. And uh, always good to get um, a lighter side of Ed Husick as well because there's some pretty serious and heavy news to talk about this morning. You're listening to RN Breakfast. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.